to share the reason for our hope to serve with love and grace lift high the name of jesus of jesus our king make known the power of his grace the beauty of his peace remember how his mercy reached as we cried out to him he lifted us to solid ground to freedom from our sin let's go oh sing my soul Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus our Lord. His power in us is greater than, is greater than this world. To share the reason for our hope, to serve with love and grace, that all who see him shine through us might bring the Father's praise. Oh, sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory. Lift high the name of Jesus of jesus our life no other name on earth can save can raise a soul to life he opens up our eyes to see the harvest he has grown we labor in his fields of grace as he leads sinners home oh see and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory oh sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory is our stone that was rejected. The stone that was rejected has become my cornerstone. Now my light and my salvation will be found in you alone. Word made flesh you dwelt among my soul sing you are holy that my life 
created and heaven and on earth the visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and by him all things hold together he is also the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything for God was pleased to have him have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to him by making peace through the blood of his cross whether things on earth or things in heaven ancient creed together our father everlasting the all creating one God almighty through your Holy Spirit conceiving Christ the Son Jesus our Savior 
the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light. Forever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in you. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of love singing that creed together because it's so special for us to rehearse as a people of God the tenets, the, the very foundation of what we believe. Um, because I, I think as we sing that, it gets into our soul and we think we want to make sure to really believe. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. It's everything that when the world looks at Christianity, they say, well, I can believe I want, to, I want to be a good person, but I can't believe in the virgin birth. Like, scholars will say, I can't, I can't reconcile the Bible because I can't believe in those things. I can't believe in a God that does that. And so it's so important and special for us to come together and to sing that we believe in what Scripture teaches. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in that because it makes God 
Jesus, fully God and fully man, makes him able to redeem us from our sins. Uh, and so hearing you guys push and push the sound this way and pour that out in your hearts is a testimony to what God has done in your soul. Uh, and we just want to celebrate that as we sing this next song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and
marvelous. On Saturday night, um, when we all gathered here, there was one person I didn't recognize or in, uh, introduce, and that is our teen speaker for the week. Um, Greg Gosnell is in the back. Wave your hand, Greg. Greg is a youth pastor, associate pastor at Faith Baptist Church in Mason City, just about... Uh, 20 minutes from here, and uh, the youth pastor at the church that I serve at, and he has agreed to come over every morning. He's got other things going on this week, but he's going to come over and be the speaker for the teens. So um, we're going to go ahead and dismiss uh, the teens. So teens, if you would stand and make your way to the back, um, Greg will be meeting with you and heading downstairs, I believe, in Jensen. All right, then uh, after the teens make their way, that's a lot of teens. Don't tell them they might outnumber the adults, I don't know. Um, four through sixth graders, why don't you go ahead and stand up. Four through sixth graders, make your way to the back. It's only Monday, look how slow they're moving already. This is... Might be a good thing, right? It's going to bed, sleeping early. Um, first through third grade. First through third grade. Make your way back. They're not moving slow. I don't know if they ever do, do they? Yeah, yeah. And last but not least, the four and five year olds. Four and five year olds. Gives a whole new meaning to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth right there. All right. Last night, um, I was not able to be in the evening service. So I ran back to my church quick. We had a, a brief uh, deacons meeting, and so I wasn't able to be here. But I heard a lot of good things um, and excited to hear what Jariah has for us today. So Jariah is going to come and share with us a second time. Whenever kids are crying as they're dismissed right before I preach, I just assume that's because they really want to hear me. And uh, my wife tells me that is not the case. It's great to see everyone. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 7, and we'll get to there eventually. Uh, but would you join with me in prayer as we begin this morning? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here. We're so grateful that your word speaks to this common experience we have of fear. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to have a love for you that outshadows our love for everything else, so that even when we're afraid, 
we have a greater fear, a greater desire, a greater respect for you, a greater uh, love for you that motivates us that even in the midst of our fear, we still move forward in obedience because of how much we value you. God, today as we talk about the fear of failure, I pray that you would uh, help me to say only true things from your word. Uh, and I pray that you would take my words much farther than I ever could. That through your spirit you would apply them to our hearts. That you would encourage us and challenge us as in our walk of faith. Thank you, above all, for Christ. And I, I love the songs we just sang. And I'm so thankful that he died for me. And he died for each one here. And that through that we can have a relationship with the God who says, do not fear. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word in your church. And it's in Christ's name, through your spirit we pray. Amen. So we are doing this series called Do Not Fear, Finding Hope in What Scares Us Most. And if you recall last night, we talked about how uh, when it comes to defining fear, uh, Jason, my clicker is not working here. Um, when it comes to defining fear, we said what drives fear is uh, uh, you fear what you fear because you're afraid of losing what you love. And to uh, what we love and how much we love it determines what we fear and how much we fear it. Uh, whenever I have fear in my life, it's a statement about what I value. And we show that that's true because I uh, fear losing my child in the mall in a way I don't fear losing a quarter in my pocket at the mall. Why? What drives that fear? Well, one matters to me and the other doesn't. What matters to you most will drive what you are afraid of losing in your life. And so whenever we feel fear, it is a statement about value. This morning, we're going to be talking about the fear of failure. The fear of failure. I want to give an example from my own life. Uh, one of my favorite things to do I love, so I, I do a lot of apologetics talks, and I do a lot of teaching people that Christianity is true, Christianity is worth believing, and it makes a difference in your life. Well, one of the things that I love to do when I do seminars on apologetics are Q&A times, where people can just ask any of the questions that they've been burned with, that they are uh, uh, working through in their own mind, that they've never had an answer to. And I say, I may not know the answer, but let's walk through those things and see if we can think through those things together. And it's more about teaching how people, or teaching people how to think through things than giving them, you know, an answer for every objection. But my first time of doing something like that, uh, how many of you went to Faith Baptist Bible College? Uh, uh, yes, okay, enough of you, that you would know senior orals. Right? You would know what senior orals are. So senior orals were that time uh, uh, for those going into the ministry who took systematic theology, and we would have to stand up and defend a particular doctrine. Uh, the professors would ask the questions, and you wouldn't know what the questions were ahead of time. You didn't even necessarily know what doctrine you were going to be defending. And I thought that I was all that in a bag of chips, and I was ready to take on the world. And so when it was time to sign up for who was going to go first, that day my hand shot up and I said, Dr. Paul, I want to go first. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Boom, there it is. And I'm thinking, I want to show all the other students how this is done, okay? And then I started studying for it and I realized that I didn't know half of what I thought I did. And I freaked out. That morning, I showed up. I was, so, I was in knots. I couldn't breathe. Uh, my wife will tell you, I was just a mess. 
And that night, I'm crying, and I'm going, Shauna, I'm going to fail. Shauna, I'm going to fail. I'm gonna, I, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm never going to be asked to do anything ever again. My ministry's going to end. It's going to be awful. And that morning, I showed up to Dr. Paul's office in tears. And I was not the same guy that went, I want to go first. And I said, Dr. Paul, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask questions. I don't know, and I'm going to fail. And he goes, dry it. It's, it's okay. You can go another day. And I was so ashamed of myself that I didn't go to class that day. I just went home for the day. I missed the rest of my classes that day. I couldn't look anyone in the eye because I had been so arrogant to think I'm going to show everyone how this is done. And then I blew it. Out of fear of failure, I stopped from my responsibilities. Now, great, granted, I had a professor that was very gracious with me. But let's be honest, life is not always that gracious. When we fail, when we blow it, sometimes there are major consequences to our actions. You know, the fear of failure can make us better because it makes us try harder sometimes. Because I don't want to do poorly, I put the work into it and try harder. That can be a very good thing. Because I don't want to fail at home, work, sports, hobbies, church, etc. I give it my all. That is a good thing that comes from the fear of failure. Great. But the fear of failure can make us never even try in the first place. It's not just that it makes us try harder. Sometimes it makes us never even try. And so we see what God is calling us to do in his word or as he's leading in our lives. And we think, no, I can't do that. I'm not even going to take those first steps of obedience because I know, I know I'm going to blow it. And even if I don't know it, it's not worth the risk. I don't want to fail. Why do we think we're going to fail? Maybe because we failed in the past. I've failed before. I just know I'm not going to be able to do it this time. Uh, I was a lifeguard here at the camp, and uh, I was notorious for the guy who took three years, three years to be able to pass the swim test. Why? Because I do not like endurance things. Nope, no. Nope. That's why I like weightlifting. I'm too ADD for endurance things. You know, 10, ten reps, and you move on to something else. Uh, but five times around the pool, and I just, nope, couldn't do it. And uh, each time I would do it, my, I would get psyched out going, I failed the last time, I failed the last, and yeah, they actually let me be a lifeguard eventually, I know. <laughs> Same thing with those people out there, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but uh, as, as I would uh, uh, look at my past, I would look at how I had blown it in the past, uh, I would psych myself out every time I'd go. I'd go, I, I just tried to take this test two days ago, I failed then, I just know I'm going to fail now. Sometimes past failure, sometimes intense difficulty. I just know how hard this is going to be, and so I don't even try. I, I'm afraid of the work this is going to take. Sometimes it's because of inexperience. I don't know how to do what I'm supposed to be doing, so I don't even try. I know I'm going to blow it because I don't know how to do it. That's one of the worst feelings in the world is when you know what you need to do, but you don't know how to do it, and you don't know who to talk to for help. Or then, number four, fatigue. I'm too tired to go on. I know I'm going to fail, so I'm just going to stop now. I can't do it anymore, whether in your marriage or in your church or with your health or whatever God is working in in your life. You're thinking, I can't take another step of obedience. I'm done. I'm spent. I'm tired. So we look at the task before us and conclude before we even begin that we could never do it. So we avoid it. 
But why is the fear of failure so powerful in our lives? After all, there's a lot of things that I don't really care if I fail at. If I'm playing, you know, uh, uh, sorry with my kids and we're going through and they beat me, okay, I don't really lose a whole lot of sleep about that. Now, some of you might. Um, I, I had a, a deacon at one church who uh, was notorious for you don't play board games with him because he'd flip the board if he lost, okay? Uh, and, and, and some of you may just very well be like that, okay? Not judging, I'm just saying. But that doesn't bother me. But there are other things I'm so afraid to fail at that I don't even want to try. Our fear of failure stops us from doing what God is calling us to do and from experiencing the joys that come with succeeding. So what do we do instead? The answer isn't to never fail. The answer isn't to never fail. What do we do about this? Well, you can't say, well, I'm just going to never fail at anything. Because the only one who never fails is who? <laughs> Jesus. Everyone not Jesus fails. The answer also isn't to never try. Because when God commands something, he expects obedience. So the answer is not to simply go, I'm just going to avoid it, I'm going to never try. There are things God calls me to do for his glory and for my good to impact others, and so I cannot simply sit it out. So what is the answer? The answer is to look at why we are afraid of failure in the first place. The answer isn't to never fail or to never try, but to look at why I'm so afraid to fail in the first place. And we've said, uh, uh, find, uh, uh, we fear what we fear because we're afraid of losing what we love. So what is it that we fear when it comes to the issue of failure? Sometimes, uh, we, what are we afraid of losing? Sometimes we're afraid of losing our privileges, right? If I, if I blow this, I'll lose privileges that I have or I'll lose respect. People won't think as highly of me if I fail. I'll lose my public image. People, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you build yourself up as a winner and then you fail, well, what happens? People don't see you as a winner anymore. And you tend to think, oh, no, my whole reputation, my public image is gone. Our destination, I won't get in life where I need to be if I fail at this point. Or even our energy, if I fail, I won't have what it takes to go on anymore. When I feel failure, it's because I'm afraid of losing things like these. But no one ever not fails but Jesus. You say, no, 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 no. If I don't try, I can't fail. No, because then you fail at uh, trying. The fear of failure is a fear of being confronted with our limitations. The fear of failure is a fear of being confronted with our limitations. Ever since, Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And even uh, uh, the Old Testament says that his sin was saying, I will ascend to the mountain of the Most High and I will be like the Most High. Ever since that point, mankind has been trying to act like God. We've been saying, whatever I want, I should be able to have. Whatever I think, I should be able to accomplish. Whatever I decide to do, I should be able to pull off. The fear of failure is, an, is a refusal, or sorry, and a refusal to try because we might fail is rooted in the belief that I should be successful at anything I put my mind to. And the problem is, when I fail, what am I confronted with? The fact that I am not who? I'm not God. And every time I fail, I realize that I am not God. But what is that? What is this attitude that I should be able to do whatever I want to do? I should be able to accomplish whatever I want. The Bible calls that pride. That's exactly what that is. The fear of failure is rooted in pride. 
The fear of failure is rooted in pride. We see this idea in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, I ought not think of myself as more capable of perfection than I am. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. And yet, whenever I have this fear of failure, that if I fail, uh, I'm going to lose all these things in my life, it is an expectation that I should be good at anything I decide to be good at. But God has made us as finite creatures, because after all, if I fail, I will be confronted with the fact that I am not God. How does the Bible describe God? One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Psalm 8, says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you uh, take care of him, or that you care for him? What do we see in this passage? We see two themes. Number one, how great God is and how not great we are. We see those themes uh, both on display, that God is the one who has orchestrated and created all of these things in the universe, and then it compares us and it says, what is man? So that's the first theme. The second theme that we see is that even in spite of our limitations, even in spite of our finiteness, our creatureliness, what is God's attitude toward us? One of care, one of love. This awesome, infinite God created these finite creatures and loves them. When we consider the problem of pride, pride is the essence of Romans 1, where Paul writes that for, since the, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and against men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident to them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. And then, once he talks about how all people naturally suppress the truth of God, he says, and trading worship of God for worship of the created thing, they became fools, professing to be wise. What is the essence of futility? It's the creature claiming to be on par with the creator. But that is what the fear of failure always has as its root. It is the idea that I should be able to pull off anything I choose to do, and when I can't, I'm confronted with the fact that God alone is God and all-powerful, and I'm not. But then what do we do with it? Because the fact is, I can know that I'm not God, but because I know that, I don't even want to try. I think that, okay, uh, uh, if, if, if I'm confronted with this fact, I'm less than uh, uh, my ideal of myself. I'm less than what other people think. What do I do once I've failed? What do I do uh, uh, to keep me trying even when I'm afraid of failure? And I just want to walk through four helpful suggestions this morning. And the first one we find in Romans 7. So like I said, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. How do we handle failure when it comes? Because it's going to come. And the question is, uh, what are you going to do when it comes? Because as long as you know you will fail at things, the important thing is to have a strategy for how do I move forward in a biblical way handling my failure. And the first way that we handle failure is to, number one, 
rest in God's view. Rest in God's view. Romans chapter 6, before we get to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 6 is a wonderful passage in which Paul talks about you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's your identity in Christ. That is what happens when you place your faith and trust in Christ. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are defined by Christ in you. It is a change in your identity. It is a change in your power. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The dominating power of sin in your life is turned off. It's not that it's not there, but it's that it does not have power over you, and you can fight sin in your life. That's Romans 6. It's, it's this theology in which he says in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As that great theologian John Denver once said, you got to serve somebody. Every single choice I make is either a reflection of I'm serving the living God or I'm serving the little gods of my heart. you got to serve somebody. And then he says... Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For you were slaves of sin, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I love this. Uh, verses 20 through 23, everybody should memorize. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all know that last verse, right? For uh, the ways of sin is death. And we instantly think that's talking about hell. That in the context, that's not what it's talking about, is it? It's talking about my behavior leads to death when I pursue sin. Sin kills things. That's what it does. That's its job. It kills our joy. kills our relationship with God. It kills our relationship with others. It destroys things. That's all it does. And so he says, for the wages, what you get from sinning is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's theology here in Romans 6 is, you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God in Christ. Therefore, why are you still pursuing sin in your life when it's killing you? In other words, uh, think of it this way. Imagine you have billions and billions of dollars in gambling debt. I mean, you, you could never get out of this. And somebody comes and pays your debt because they love you. And you go, thanks. And you walk right back into the casino. <laughs> Hello, McFly. Anybody there? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? Why would you run right back to the thing that was so bad it was killing you and needed Jesus to die for in order to, for you to be free from? But every time I give in to sin, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm running right back to the thing that was killing me. But what happens when I pursue God? I have joy. Now, that's the backdrop. And then I love Romans 7. Because Paul is going, 
This is what true theology is, Romans 6. And then Romans 7, verse 15. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do. For I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, and I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is kind of a who's on first, right? I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I love this. This is such an encouragement. Paul is going, look, I've just told you great theology in Romans 6. And yeah, I struggle to do it too. <laughs> he goes, I know this is true. And yet, the good things I should be doing, I find myself not doing those. And the bad things I shouldn't be, I find myself doing those things. Paul is going, I'm not perfect. I know what God's word teaches. I'm the one writing it, Paul says. And yet, even Paul was struggling to do it. I love the humanness of the biblical writers. I love Peter when he talks about Paul in uh, his letter, and he talks about false teachers, and he says, uh, as they twist, uh, they twist the, the, the scriptures, uh, or Paul's words, as they do the other scriptures. And he's calling Paul equal with scripture, but I love what he says, um, that uh, our, our beloved brother Paul, who writes some things of which are hard to understand. I love if even Peter's looking at what Paul's going on. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> like, that's wonderful for me. But as, as, as Paul is walking through this here, he's going, I know what God says is true. I know here's his standard. I know what I should be doing. But I don't measure up even after I become a Christian. And Paul could have easily gone, the struggle is too hard, I'm done. I'm just going to say, you know what, once saved, always saved. I'll just First John 1, 9 it up every time I can and not have to worry about it. But he doesn't do that. What does he say? Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, I, I look at God's law and I go, yeah, that really is better. But I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He's going, I'm so tired of the fight. Do you ever get tired of the fight in your heart? Well, you just see sin coming up over and over and over and over. Jonathan Edwards, the, uh, the Puritan preacher, said the farther down you look in your heart, the more sin you're going to find. If you're looking for righteousness on the inside, no matter how deep you go, no matter how down, far down you dig, you're just going to find more unrighteousness. And that's what Paul's going. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And his answer is not. His answer is not. I'm just going to try harder, and then God will love me. I'm going to try harder, and then God will forgive me. I'm going to try harder, and then God will like me. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, and on the other with my flesh to the, uh, the law of sin. And then chapter 8, verse 1. By the way, this is all on the screen, so there we go. Okay, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. 
And I want you to understand the argument that he's making. God does not judge you by your successes or your failures. Your successes don't make God like you any more than your failures make God hate you. Your successes don't give you brownie points with God. Your failures do not cause God to not like you. God poured out all his wrath for you on Jesus. All of it. God will never even look cross at you again. Because Jesus took all of the wrath of God. Which means my successes don't make me more uh, loved by God in any way, shape, or form. And my failures don't make God not like me. God loves me in full. And he likes me in Christ. He looks through the blood of Jesus and he doesn't see my sins and he doesn't see my successes. All he sees is righteousness credited from Christ to me. That's it. The doctrine of justification is that your sins have been forgiven in full, past, present, and future. When Jesus died and says, it is finished, that meant all the sins before, the sins that were happening to him on the cross, and every sin until he comes back is paid for. But then his righteousness as the Son of God is credited to my account. It's not just that I'm forgiven and that I'm somehow neutral before God and now, you know, I'm, I'm cleansed from original sin and now it's my job to do the rest. No, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul talks about the imputed righteousness or the credited righteousness in Romans 4. God's view of me is not dependent on my successes or failures. And you have to understand this. Whether you do well in life or you stink at life, God's not mad at you. Do you get that? Because we don't. Especially in our, in our types of circles, we tend to, to motivate this. I, I know I'm saved by grace, but man, if, if, if I want God to, to like me, I have to be a good enough Christian. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you, your sin is paid in full. Your relationship with God is not based on your righteousness before or after Christ. And this fear of failure that I have that somehow God is going to hate me if I don't measure up to his standard. I'll never measure up to his standard. But Christ measured up to his standard in my place. That's the gospel. I don't have to be afraid of failure because my failure has already been paid for by Jesus. I am free to fail without the judgment of God on my life. I want you to get this down into your soul because it changed my life when I realized God doesn't keep checklists of how many times I read my Bible, how many times I pray, how many times I went to church, how many, times, how many people I shared the gospel with, and he's going, well, you know, you're more spiritual today than you were yesterday, and I guess, you know, I'll give you more blessings today. That's not how God works. 
God's grace is the only basis of my standing. But that means my failures don't count against me. You see, God isn't in a relationship with us because we are great. But because he is great and wants to share that greatness with us. God isn't in a relationship with us because we are so great. God, God didn't look at me and go, man, I just, I got to have one of those. <laughs> no, no. God looked at me and said, I want him to know my greatness. And he gave me a relationship with himself so that I would receive God, not so that he'd have me. God is a giver. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. So he doesn't need your successes, and he's not turned off by your failures. God gave you himself so that you would enjoy a relationship with him. I have a practice when I put my kids to bed at night. My, my daughter Hannah just rolls her eyes now because I do this all the time. As I, I sing to her, and then I, I kiss her goodnight, and I go, why do I love you? Because I want her to get this. And she rolls her eyes and goes, because I'm your daughter. I said, that's right. I said, do I love you because you're good at school? No. I said, would I love you less if you failed a math test? No. I said, do I love you because you're pretty? No. I said, do I, would I love you less if you were ugly? No. I said, why do I love you? I love her just because she's my daughter. That's how God loves us. He doesn't love us because we're great at something. He doesn't love us less that we stink at something. He loves us just because we're his children, born again through the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite quotes when we think of this, this is so wonderful to think about in our relationship with God. When it comes to our failures in our relationship with God, failure is an event, not a person. Failure is something that happens in my life, but it's never my identity. I am not a failure to God. I am righteous in Christ before God. I may fail at times, but that's not who I am, and that's not who you are. In Christ, you are righteous. Failure is an event. It's never a person. When it came to this experience in my life of failing miserably at my orals and just, just the embarrassment I was so afraid I'd never be able to uh, grow. I'd never be able to have another opportunity like that. My reputation is gone. I had to learn that God does not evaluate me by how well I do on my senior orals. God does not evaluate me by what my class thought of me. I had to learn I need to rest in God's view of me. And God's view of me is whether I'm good at orals or I'm bad at them, I am righteous in Christ. And my righteousness does not depend on my successes or failures. I have to rest in God's view. Number two, we have to focus on our calling. We rest in God's view, but number two, we focus on our calling. One of my pet peeves is hashtag Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wonderful verse does not mean you're going to win the championship because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, okay? Um, I can quote hashtag Philippians 4.13 all I want, but gravity and my weight are going to keep me from dunking a basketball, okay? Uh, I, can, I can name it and claim it all I want to, uh, but reality tends to uh, put a damper on those things. Philippians 4.13 gives us this promise. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But what are the all things he's talking about there? 
He's not talking about winning the big game. In there, he's talking about having joy in our relationship with Christ, even in the midst, as Pastor Josh was talking about, our circumstances. His whole point is you can do what God has called you to do because Jesus died so you could do those things, and the Spirit is in you so you can do those things. You have the Word instructing you so you can do those things, and you have the church encouraging you so you can do those things. If being successful at everything was God's purpose for you, it would happen. I mean, can God's purpose be thwarted? No. So if God's divine plan for you was that you'd never fail, then trust me, you'd never fail. But if I'm failing, that shows that's not God's plan for me. God's plan is not that I would be successful at everything, but that I would become like Christ in everything. Amen? That's God's goal. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together. Oh, man, I, I hate when Bible translators mistranslate passages. It should say, we know that God causes most of the things in my life to work together for good, right? Now, some of you are looking like, wait, what? God causes some things. No, God causes everything in my life except for the thing I'm going through. No, what does it say? All means all, and that's what? All that all means? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now the problem is, is I want to say what that good is, and so do you. If God was good, my marriage wouldn't look like it does. If God was good, my kids wouldn't look like they were. If God was good, my body would not be ridden with cancer. If God was good, that coworker wouldn't be doing that to me. If God was good, my church wouldn't be failing me, or whatever it may be. If God was good, my life would look like X. You fill in the blank. But how does God fill in the blank? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to what? The image of his son. God's ultimate good in your life is that you would be like Jesus. And he gives you everything you need to do that. He doesn't give you everything you need to be successful at everything you want to do. He gives you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. We see the same idea in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Not success. It produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if that idea of perfect is never messing up, now that's a goal we've already seen. It's not God's goal. What is that idea of perfect? It's not talking about being successful at everything. It's talking about being like Christ, the perfect one. God's promises of success are directly tied to your calling, not your desires. God does not promise me success at everything I ever want to do. He promises me success to the extent that I will pursue Christ's likeness. If I live my life for things I wasn't designed for, when I fail, I will be devastated. But when I, have, uh, when I live my life for things God made me for, I can be disappointed, but I'm not devastated. Because I didn't build my life on those things. As a spouse, my calling is not to have a spouse that obeys God. My calling is for me to obey God. As a parent, my calling isn't to guarantee that my kids walk with the Lord, but to be a faithful example to them. As an employee, my calling isn't to always be great at my job, but to show Christ's likeness under stress and to respond right to failure as a light to my coworkers. As a pastor, my calling isn't to make people do what God has called them to do, 
but to be wise and faithful in pointing them to Christ. My calling isn't results. My calling is faithful obedience. And responding biblically to failure is part of my faithful obedience. What I had to learn in my failure is that my calling was not to be a perfect student. Even now, my calling is not to be the perfect scholar. My calling is to be faithful. My calling is to be obedient. My calling is to recognize my mistakes and keep moving forward as we're going to talk about. My calling is to faithfully represent God. Whether I'm great at it or not, that's my calling. And God has given me everything I need to do those things. But then what happens when I do fail? Number three, learn from mistakes. Learn from mistakes. I love what we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. But if they have to learn it, what does that mean by extension? That they're not already doing it. <laughs> they're, already, they're, they're not showing these good deeds and he's going, hey, Titus, we need to teach our people to engage in good deeds. They need to learn how to do these things. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11 says, like a dog returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I love that. I mean, that's just a boom, blunt, right there. What is he saying? To keep doing the same things over and over and keep making the same mistakes is like a dog that threw up and went to eat it again. That's the point that he's making. That's gross. That's foolishness. That's what I do when I don't learn from my mistakes. So what are we supposed to do when we fail? Well, 1 John 1, 9 is very clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, I do confess my sin. But that's not where I leave it. I don't just confess it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here's the biblical model for how I learn and grow, how I make progress and learn from my mistakes. The first thing I have to do is own it. I have to own it. Before I can ever learn from my mistakes, I have to admit I blew it. Some of you are living your life with guilt that you can't get rid of, and a lot of it's rooted in the fact you won't own it. You're living your life in sin. You're living your life. You've messed up in big ways, and you blame everybody else. You say it was the church's fault. It was your spouse's fault. It was your kid's fault. It was your parents' fault. It was uh, your boss's fault. It was your coworker's fault. It was your employee's fault. And you won't own up to the fact that you did it. You sinned. You disobeyed God, and now you're living with the guilt because you won't make it right. We will never learn from our mistakes until we own it. Number two, we confess it. We own it and we confess it. Now what is the idea in 1 John 1, 9 where he says to confess our sins? Does that mean I need to come before God and I need to crawl my way before the throne and I need to beg and beg and promise to never do it again and, if I don't, uh, and that's the only way God's going to ever forgive me? No, it's not what it means at all. The word for confess comes from two Greek words, homo and logos. Homo, same, logos, word. To confess means to agree with God, to say the same word, that what I did is sin. That's what God asked me to do. Admit it. Own it and confess it as sin to God. But then what do we see as we looked at Ephesians chapter 4? I have to refuse it. 
I have to put off those things in my life that led to those bad decisions, that encouraged those bad decisions. I have to put off the things God says not to do and the things that don't help me do what God says not uh, uh, to do. And then he says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We rethink it. What is true about God? What is true about the situation? What is true about what God is calling me to do? Who is God? Who are other people? Who am I? I rethink through the situation. Go, what can I learn? What can I do different? And then lastly, we replace it. What do I need to do different in order to avoid that same situation? I own it. I confess it. I refuse it. I rethink it. And I replace it. You may fail. But you only learn to do things better by not doing it best. That's the only way you learn. You get better by not doing it best. So I ask questions like, what went wrong? What did I contribute? What needs to change next time? You turn your failures into opportunities to learn and grow and to make something better. Theodore Roosevelt said, the only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. Edison spent more than $100,000 to obtain 6,000 different fiber specimens, and only three of them proved satisfactory. Each failure brought him that much closer to the solution to his problem. His friend Henry Ford was right when he said that failure was the opportunity to begin again, but this time more knowledgeable. Some of you are living your lives refusing to own your own sin to God or others, some of you uh, uh, will admit that you did it, but don't think it has anything to do with your relationship with God, so you're not confessing it as sin. Some of you continue in the same patterns of going, all right, yeah, I messed up, I confessed it, but I'm going to keep running right back to that cycle. You're not replacing, all right, you're, you're not uh, uh, refusing, rethinking, and replacing. I couldn't hide in my failure. I had to own it. I had to come before my professor and say, I messed up, I was arrogant, I was wrong, I was unprepared. I had to own it. I confessed my attitude towards God, to God. I confessed my attitude to my professor. And the next time, I redid the way I was preparing to engage. And then lastly, number four, we keep moving forward. We keep moving forward. Paul talks in his letter to the Philippians. Not to steal your thunder, Pastor Josh. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I what? Press on. Pressing on is that enduring struggle of keep moving forward. So that I may, excuse me, lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His whole point is, look, yes, I failed. I've blown it. I'm not where I ought to be. So I learn from it. I move on. I move forward from those things that I blew it in. We read in uh, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. The righteous is not the person who never fails. The righteous is the person who keeps moving forward. We see the same idea in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin, things God says not to do. Encumbrance, things that hinder me in my growth. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We're called to keep moving forward, but this is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture. And here's why. When we read Hebrews 12, we think, okay, there's Jesus, and he ran the race, so I just got to run it like him, and that's how I won't grow weary. How many of you can run the race like Jesus? Man, I've never taken encouragement from that verse. That has always been a weight on my soul. I'm going, man, if I, if I have to run the race and, and watch Jesus who did it perfectly and that's how I'm supposed to do it, man, I'm sorry, I'm done. But what does he mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? It's because Jesus ran the race perfectly in my place. I can run with endurance, not because I can do what Jesus did, but because I'm not judged for my falters in the race. Because Jesus ran it perfectly for me. Look at what it says. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Because the race is finished for Jesus. I can have endurance in my race knowing it's okay if I falter. I just have to keep moving forward. You may have tripped and fallen in your spiritual race to the finish. But when it really comes down to it, the only real failure is to allow yourself to, to, uh, to allow your failure to stop your progress. As long as you can take another breath, your failure has not beaten you. As long as you can take another step, your failure has not won. Every breath you take, every step you take, is an act of moving forward. But sometimes we think that God's done with me because of how I've sinned in my life. I have a pastor friend uh, out on the East Coast, and uh, it was his mission in life. Uh, he was going to plant 10 churches in 10 years. And he, he, I mean, I don't agree with his model at all, the way he was doing it. As, by himself, he was going to go out and plant 10 churches in 10 years. And in six years, he planted six churches with an attendance of 700 people. Now, that's an incredible thing that God did. He burned out and he uh, sold out and he committed gross, gross immorality. He's disqualified from, disqualified from the ministry. After six years of passionately uh, investing in this mission that he believed God had given him, he burned himself out and he failed miserably. A couple years ago, I went out for coffee with him or for lunch with him while I was out on the East Coast. And he looked at me and said, Dariah, is God done with me? I mean, I, I can't be a pastor anymore. Is God done with me? I looked at him, I said, can you still love other people? Yeah, I said, can you still serve others? Yeah, can you still pray for others? Yeah. So then God's not done with you. You may not be able to fulfill that role, but it doesn't mean you can't fulfill a role. God is not done with us as long as we can still obey him in the things he brings into our life today. Today he's serving the Lord as a businessman and is seeking to be an example to everyone he encounters of God's grace in his life. Because he didn't let his failures stop him from doing what God had called him to do. He confessed it, 
He owned it. He confessed it. He replaced it, rethought it, and replaced it. It took me time after my failure to be able to get up in front of people and be able to just take questions like that again. But the next time I did it, I had a much more humble spirit. God humbled me through that process. And he taught me it's not about how smart you are, about how, how good you answer questions. It's about simply being used by me. It took time. It took work. But I kept moving forward. And today, it's one of my favorite things to do. But it's coming from a very different heart, a heart that has been humbled, rather than a heart that's going, hey, I want to show everybody what I know. That was what God did through failure in my life. I'm not afraid to fail today because I've seen what God does in my life until the next time I'm afraid to fail. Because what is fail? What, what, is, what are these fears? They're repeated things. You don't deal with one and then move on to the next. These are some things that we have to fight over and over every day. And that's why I'm so thankful for that testimony that we saw in Romans chapter 7. That Paul's even going, look, I know what I should be doing. I teach people these things. I'm writing the Bible as I'm telling people these things. And I'm still struggling to do them. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. If I could end on one note, it would simply be this. Your successes and failures do not determine your relationship with God. They do not determine the way God sees you. God sees you as righteous in Christ, and it's, it's okay to fail What's not okay is to allow your failure to stop you from moving forward in your walk with Christ. So yesterday we asked, what could God do in your life if fear wasn't holding you back? Here's the discussion question I want you guys to go home and dis- or go out and discuss. What could God do in your life if the fear of failure wasn't holding you back? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you for what you've done in my life. And it's hard to be humbled. It's hard to to face the embarrassment at times of failure. But God, I'm so thankful that, number one, you don't condemn me for my failure. You grow me in my failure. God, I thank you for each one who's here, and I pray that if they're going through seasons where they're experiencing failure, God, that they would run to you and find the embrace of a father. I pray for each one of us that we would Pursue our calling, not our desires. God, that's so hard to do. I want to pursue the things that bring me immediate joy, but that's not what you call me to. You call me to pleasing you, making a difference in the lives of others, and growing to be more like Christ. God, I pray that each of us would pursue that in our lives. I pray that not only would we pursue that, but that we would learn from our mistakes. That we would own it, confess it, refuse it, rethink it, replace it. And that we keep moving forward, not allowing our failures to hinder us, but trusting in your grace, moving forward one step at a time. God, I pray for those who are here that maybe the fear of failure is holding them back from following you. I pray that you give us courage to obey you in all things. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, in your spirit, amen. Pick up your keys.